0: So today's hard saying, like many we've looked at this year, is hard not because it has been misinterpreted or misapplied. We'll get to more hard sayings later on about that. But today's hard saying is hard because it is so crystal clear. Our nature wants to push against it, right? And that is why I prayed a prayer of repentance for us, because every single one of us, myself included, has a nature and a desire to reject others who want to tell us what to do with our lives. You're not alone in this. You and I have a nature that pushes against Jesus as ultimate affection and ultimate authority. So the work of God in our lives is to give us new hearts so that we can see Jesus, like I prayed, He is the end. The end isn't wealth. The end isn't romance. The end isn't family. The end is Jesus as ultimate affection and ultimate authority. So last time, our brother Vernon brought the message, a hard message, right, about the struggle that you will experience as a Christian in your relationships because you put Jesus first and family second. That was last week. You put Jesus before romance You will see what happens to that relationship. You put Jesus before mom and dad, before sister and brother, child and grandchildren, you will see what happens in those relationships. You learn about the relational struggles that you will experience as a Christian because your family members are not Christians. Today, you're going to see not an external struggle, but an internal struggle in you. Jesus is calling for you to have a singular devotion to him. Jesus took on flesh. He took on the cross. He took on death. He took on resurrection to create this in you. So a personal relationship with Jesus, the Jesus who turned water into wine, the Jesus who healed the sick, who exercised the demon, who calmed the seas, who raised the dead, tells you today, that a relationship with him is an exclusive relationship that, that comes above family, it comes above romance, and it comes above the safety and security that you think you have in wealth. Now, I've said this uh, for many times to you throughout the years, that I believe that Not just American culture, but culture in general, likes to steal biblical themes, biblical images, biblical ideas, and try to revamp it to make it sit in its culture correctly. Secular culture attempts to mimic this. The modern American workplace, for example, steals gospel themes about family. And I don't know if you've ever been a part of a workplace. I am tempted with this all the time working in public school education, but the modern American workplace emphasizes that you have a work family. Have you ever heard that one before? You have a work tribe, right? They try and create this culture that rips off what the Bible says, I believe, about church family. They distort the lines between personal relationships and public secular relationships, And the boss or the leader of this organization is followed with affection and authority, right? We ask, why does this happen? Even though our culture is thoroughly non-Christian, they still live and exist as fallen image bearers of God. That even the non-Christian is handcrafted in the image of God. And the reason why they seek certain things in life is because God has created them to find Satisfaction and enjoyment in one thing and one thing alone, above all, and that is God Himself. God created you to experience Him with a singular devotion as your ultimate affection. Now, culture rejects this and replaces this with many different options for you to mimic the reason why God created you here in America on this path to life, liberty, and happiness. But this is what Jesus is going to address today in you. And in me. So let's get to our proposition. We're gonna see through this text that God works in the Christian to love and to serve Jesus as their ultimate affection and authority. That in essence there is no such thing as a person who calls themselves Christian, who maybe says they love Jesus, but they don't see Jesus as their ultimate authority. Or, contrast, sees Jesus as God, the ultimate authority in life but doesn't love him as a reflection of that. That you cannot disassociate loving God and serving God. They go hand in hand. Before you were a Christian, before I was a Christian, you and I either put our singular devotion in the wrong place, and then we were burned for it, or you and I may have had multiple masters, multiple devotions before we were Christians. Two weeks ago, I pushed for you to change your framework for how you understand your heart and how you understand your affections. And I called for you to create different categories for your heart. That as a Christian, we reserve the primary affections of our hearts for one person and one person alone, the God-man, Jesus himself. And then everyone else and everything else we love out of the affections of the heart. It's not that Jesus tells us to actively hate father, mother, sister, brother, even spouse, even your own life. Is that we are to love them less, to love them more. Remember that two weeks ago. Today, you're going to see that Jesus calls us to put him above all relationships and above our wealth. Setting Jesus as the object of your ultimate affection and your ultimate authority, I believe, is the only way for you to experience what your heart really wants. It's the only way for you to experience lasting joy and satisfaction in this life and in the next. Every person, yourself included, whether you say you are a Christian or not, must resolve the issue of who or what you are going to see and that you are going to serve as ultimate. And Jesus is going to push towards this today. Whether you decide to follow Jesus or not, you were made in the image of God and therefore you must serve one master. It can be God, it can be money, it could be romance, it could be family, but you can only serve one master, and who will it be? Every person has a capacity to see something as ultimate because they were made in the image of God. And above all things, the Father sees as beloved, not us, he created us on the seventh, on the sixth day, and it was very good, right? But there's one beloved, right? There's one person that he is most pleased with, and that is his son. And you were created with that same capacity to try to find ultimate enjoyment in one thing and one thing alone, which is his son. But because of Adam and Eve, we see things upside down. We don't see Jesus as the end or as ultimate. We view that as weird and strange, and religious, and extreme. Let's get to our context today. Before this, Jesus just finished teaching his disciples about a rich man and a steward, or a manager. This steward wasted what his master gave to him. And one day, the master, the owner, called for a day of reckoning. We would call this the eschaton. We just keep throwing this in there, right? So this master calls for a day of accounting. And now the stewardess manager must come and present himself before the master, the owner. And the steward squirmed all the way to his master. And along the way, he stopped at different debtors who owed his master something. He was able to recover some of their debts. And you ask yourself, why did he do this? It's because you and I and the steward all share the same nature. We do not want to live lives that are accountable for our actions. We do not want to give an account that we have wasted our lives, that we have wasted what God has created us for and what God has given us. So to help soften the blow when we must come to that day of reckoning, we're like, but master, I brought you all of these things that other people owed you, and hope to soften the blow that I have personally wasted my life. That's what's going on with the steward. You're the same way, I'm the same way. It's human to avoid accountability and to reject authority. It doesn't matter if it's a spouse, a parent, a pastor, a doctor, a teacher, a secular official. None of us are wired to be like, I just want this authority in my life. We want to be our own self-governing authority. That is the essence of sin. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples about this. This are our opening verses, verses 10 through 12. Jesus says, he who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? You see, God is the ultimate master here. But here's the difference. God did not merely hire you as if you are a slave. That's why we love singing "Inheritors" inheritance of Psalm that says that we are no longer slaves, that we are children of God, adopted children of God. God is the master, but he didn't merely hire you. God created you. God ransomed you with the utmost cost, the most precious thing in the universe, which was his son. You, therefore, are not only an adopted son or daughter, you are also his steward, his manager. You steward his image, what he is like to the world, whether it's your marriages, your families, whether you go into the workplace, or you're out there around the world as a tourist. You image bear what God is like to the world. So we ask throughout human history, What has humanity as God's image bearers have reflected to people? And I think Jesus is addressing what we have image born to people, that God is unfaithful, because we are unfaithful. But this is exactly why God sent his son. And this is why Paul in Corinthians calls Jesus the new Adam. Because Jesus perfectly shows, faithfully shows, the image of God, because he is God. So Jesus teaches us a principle here. From these opening verses, we see that faithfulness is built over time. And one of the ways that we display faithfulness as Christians is what we do with wealth. We are entrusted with little. We are faithful stewards of little. God gives more to stewards. If you haven't demonstrated faithfulness with earthly wealth, why would God entrust something even greater and more precious than earthly wealth? If you have been given wealth and you've squandered it, or you viewed that thing as ultimate, like the end of your life, why would God give to you what is ultimate? That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, that's the principle. But as we'll get to after Easter, we're going to start... A long study into Proverbs. And we're being introduced to a lot of principles. But what we're going to learn is that this is a principle, but it doesn't work all the time because that's an abstract and it doesn't take into account that we live in a fallen world with fallen people. So we'll hear these things that if you follow God, God will create security and wealth for you in the Proverbs. But then we'll also see that those who walk with God are distorted. Right? People treat them unjustly. People steal and defraud from them. Because it's a principle that we have to apply in the real life situations, which we will do after Easter for a couple months. All right, there's my plug for after Easter. But here's what we learn here wealth is not the end game of life. Now, this is a countercultural message that America gives to us. America teaches us that wealth is the gate. That swings, and you must walk through to get what it is that you really want out of life. We live in a culture, and this is where the conviction needs to creep in a little bit, where we devote most of our seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years, to a job for a paycheck that we don't even have 5% of what we have earned so far in our lives. Think about that way. that what That is what America and Western industrialized societies produce in people, that you devote most of your life to a thing called money that none of us really actually have right now, right? That's why wealth is not the end. Wealth is a tool that Christians use to unleash our hearts in what we believe about life. So we vary greatly with American culture on wealth. So most of us do not keep anywhere near as much as we earn in what america tells us to do so we ask why do we not demonstrate faithfulness with wealth that we are given and the answer is that we are like the steward and jesus will tell you that the ultimate reason why is that you do not have a singular devotion to a master You may have the wrong master, or you may have multiple masters, and you cannot keep up with this for long until you break down. And it's proven by how you steward wealth. So this rich man employed the steward to manage his riches. But God has called you as his image bearer to steward all that he has given to you, to teach people by the way you speak and by the way that you live, that there is a God, and yes, he is just, but he's also kind. There's grace, yet there is truth, because that is who God is. Becoming a Christian is not, you coming down the altar, you decide to say, I believe in Jesus, I'm going to get baptized. That's not what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian means that you've experienced this, that you've been put in a position to say, I am that steward. My master gave me everything, and I wasted it. And you didn't avoid and reject that accountability, but you felt it in your heart of hearts. And you were broken by it, and now there's a a pivot and a change that you desire to make in your life. That is what it means to be a Christian. Becoming a Christian means that you feel the weight that Jesus took on to do for you what you cannot do for your own soul. It means that you acknowledge that you are the steward with no love and no desire for this master and to be held accountable for how you have lived your life. So let's jump into our first point and let's unravel this knot of what Jesus says about God and wealth. Our first point, Jesus calls you to see and serve your master, whatever it is, you can walk out of this place and not choose Jesus. But you are called to see and serve your master as your ultimate affection and authority. Whether or not you believe that Jesus is who he claims to be, and what he says about life is really what life is about, whether or not you decide to believe this or not, it doesn't change the fact that you are not the result of a single-cell organism that through some other cause just randomly decided to become more complex, and then, boom, you were created. It doesn't change the fact, whether you decide to love God or not, that God still created you. And he created you in a certain way with a certain function. And that you are restless until you find rest in him. God created you to live with a singular devotion. But since we all see things upside down, some apply this God-given capacity to a singular devotion to romantic relationships, family, children, hobbies, career, wealth. Jesus is warning right now against a double devotion. God did not create your heart to be ultimately devoted to more than one thing. That's not how he created you. You have an innate and broken capacity to serve someone or something as ultimate. Therefore, you cannot live your life with divided interests. I'm not even talking about Christianity right now. The human being was not designed to live their lives with divided interests, with a singular devotion. In Jesus' heart saying, you're going to hear him call you to a life of singular devotion to himself. Because Jesus created you. He knows what your heart needs most and he knows what the end of all things is. And all of those things resolve and necessitate that there is a God. He is real. His name is Jesus, and he proved he is God by taking on flesh, living and dying for you. The gospel affirms that only Jesus is worthy of this position in your heart because spouses and parents and children and hobbies and wealth cannot do for you what Jesus has done for you. Can you imagine the American dollar taking the cross for you? Let's get to verse 13. Here's the hard saying. Jesus says, no servants can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. I want to break verse 13 down into four parts to make it clear for us. So there's four steps for us to untie this knot. First thing you need to see is that whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, God did not create you to serve two masters. God created you to love and serve one master with a singular, laser-focused devotion. The object of your singular devotion, I believe, that's just your pastor talking, what you should laser-focus your sight on is the thing out in the universe that will maximize your joy and satisfaction in this life and the next. Whatever that is, pastorally, I want that for you. It's just that the gospel teaches us that there is only one thing that can do that for you. And it's not kayaking, and it's not romance, and it's not brunch on Sundays. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen? For why else are we here today? Well, you may be here for multiple reasons other than that. And we acknowledge that as a church family. If the object of your singular devotion is truly ultimate Jesus says it will lead to true riches, lasting satisfaction in this life and the next. We're not talking about the absence of affliction or the absence of adversity. Vernon was perfectly clear last week that when you set Jesus to be first, you are going to experience affliction in your family. You will. Now, can you think of any potential master out there? Government, education, family, Romance, drugs, alcohol, fill in the blank. Can you think of any potential master out there that has done more for you, that has demonstrated more love for you than Jesus? Anything else out in existence, whatever you're elevating above Jesus, would they sit on that cross and take on your sins and your sorrows for you? As much as I love the people in my life, they would not. Nor would I want them to. I've said this to you before. As your pastor, I love you. I am proud and humbled to serve Heritage Baptist Church, finishing up my seventh year in a couple weeks and beginning my eighth. I love it. Very thankful for it. I used this illustration before, that a gunman may enter into our sanctuary right now and open fire. That can happen. It happens in America. In that moment, I pray that as your shepherd, that I would have the courage, that God would have courage to obstruct the gunman's path for you. I pray that that would happen. I may take a bullet that the gunman intended for you, and I may therefore sacrifice my life for yours. But here's the thing. My sacrifice in your life is limited. It is limited no matter how much it may be romanticized later. Oh, look what a pastor did for his sheep. It is still limited because I am not ultimate. Do you get that? My sacrifice, yes, is sacrificial, but it pales in comparison to the ultimate one who sacrificed, and here's why. My sacrifice may have extended your life by seconds because, I don't know, maybe one of our deacons unleashed. Who knows? Maybe they didn't. may have extended your life by seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, or years. But my sacrifice cannot do something for you on an eternal level. Do you get that? This is what non-Christians don't get about the cross. Jesus isn't merely providing safety, security, satisfaction for today, but for eternal. And he can do that because he's not just man, but he's also perfect, and he is God. My life cannot secure life eternal for you. No matter how much in that moment, I will pray I would sacrifice myself for you. But here's the thing. Neither can that romantic relationship, your spouse, neither can your kids, neither can your hobby, neither can that substance you turn to, and neither can wealth. Only Jesus can do this because Jesus alone is Lord of all. So my call for you today is to walk out of this place and you know that Jesus is God and that Jesus alone is worthy to be your ultimate affection and authority. Now, you may say, Pastor Joe, that's not for me. And I respect that. It's not for me to see Jesus as ultimate. Okay. My preaching time will be done soon, and then we move on. But at least you know this is what it means to be a Christian. You may walk out of this place and reject it all, but at least you're walking away with a clear picture as to what it means to be a Christian and what it doesn't mean to be a Christian or what it means to be religious, maybe. You are well within your right today to refuse Jesus as ultimate affection and give it to earthly things instead. You're well within your right to do that. But nonetheless, Jesus alone is worthy to be the object of your singular devotion because this is what God created you for. This is why you have that angst in your soul that we mask it with romance and relationships and substances and hobbies and wealth. And the gospel tells you that there's no better master out there that can truly satisfy your soul. Now, the next thing you need to see is that Christianity and the gospel alone perfectly aligns affection and authority. American society has tried to do this. It has tried to borrow from the New Testament and from Christianity. American society can't do this for you, though, because we do not have the sufficient framework as Americans to provide you what you need to survive the highs and lows of a fallen, broken life. America has tried it, for example, with patriotism. We sing, God bless America, this authority in our lives, land that I love. Patriotism tries to wed affection and authority, but it fails, right? Some people give their lives to patriotism. Now, I am not saying that you should not be thankful that God in his infinite wisdom decided for you to be born in southeast United States of America or that you emigrated and became a citizen here. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that America's call to patriotism, to love this country with your utmost affections, will never satisfy you. It never will. The next political headline will send that romanticism to the trash. Now, the American workplace, as I mentioned earlier, still steals these biblical themes. The American workplace creates this narrative that you are an extension of this work family. You're part of our work tribe. We are here for you, and we are going to show up. And we see all these beautiful social media stories of these great organizations that do great things around the world. That's the latest cultural ethic right now in America. All the big corporations now have a civic identity. They don't just do coffee, they're making change in the grassroots organizations in our country. They're stealing biblical themes. But what happens when your health fades? The quarter earnings has to be reported and they have to move on because at the end of the day they're still a business. They still have a job to do, no matter your health, no matter your family struggles, no matter your mental struggles, and you cannot work. Where will that family be long-term? And then contrast that with God's vision for a church family, right? No matter where you work, no matter your skin color, no matter your gender, no matter how many zeros are in your bank accounts, that we display kindness to each other because we experience kindness in the Lord Jesus, Right? The American workplace is not your family. But America also steals from Greek philosophy and Eastern philosophy. And both of them tell you that feelings are a problem. The reason why you suffer is that you feel. And you gotta cut off those feelings. You don't talk about feelings. You don't let feelings in. That's Greek philosophy and that's Eastern philosophy. You suffer because you feel. So the Jedi way is to cut off all attachments. That's in pop culture. It's just Eastern philosophy. America adopts it, incorporates it. They elevate the mind, rational thinking at the expense of the heart, and they got it all wrong. Only Christianity, this is what I'm trying to tell you, Heritage. Only Christianity and Christianity alone properly aligns affection and authority because we have a God who is also man. Not Islam, not Buddhism, not Hinduism, not the Greeks, Not Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventists. Christianity and Christianity alone has a God-man that we can love and serve as our ultimate affection and authority. No matter what you tell your heart today, your heart is still going to be looking for a master when you walk out of this place. Your heart is restless until you find rest in God, as Augustine says only christianity and the gospel has the answer and the answer isn't patriotism it isn't convincing yourself that you have a work family and restructuring your life around that and it's not stoicism like the greeks or what buddhism and hinduism presents to you that you got to detach from all feelings The answer is that Jesus, in Jesus, your desire to experience ultimate affection and ultimate authority can be found in someone who is worthy and who will never fail you, who will never say, I'll be here this day and this time and not show up. Always be there. As God, only Jesus can take the weight of being your ultimate affection. That's why romance can't do it. God didn't design romance to be the ultimate affection, and that person will break under it. Only Jesus can bear that weight because he is God. And as man, only Jesus can take the weight of being your ultimate affection. Jesus, the God-man, took on your sins and your sorrows. And Jesus, the God-man, is also perfect, and perfectly kind, and perfectly good, and perfectly just. And Jesus says today that these are the two paths that are set before you. You cannot literally walk two paths at the same time. Can you imagine if we try to walk these two paths out at the same time? It's physically ridiculous and impossible. But we presume that even though it's physically impossible, we do this with our hearts, We try to walk two paths with our hearts, one with God, religion, and church, and another path going another way, and you can't do it forever. That's what Jesus is saying today. Whether you're a Christian or not, he created the human heart to have a singular devotion. And the question is, will you devote yourself to one master? Will you set your heart on one ultimate affection? Will you hate the one and despise the other? Now, that's harsh language, right? We unpacked this harsh language two weeks ago. That's why it's important to be here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Not perfectly, but a pattern of your presence. Because this is harsh language that we already addressed. I'm not going to address too much more because we already did it two weeks ago. But I will say that we need to be reminded that the Greek word that's used here for hate has a meaning that means to love something less. Okay? And you can listen to two weeks ago if you need more. Only one person, one thing, can be the object of your ultimate affection. And what is it going to be? You cannot serve two masters. Right here specifically, though, Jesus is beginning to address religious hypocrisy, presenting on the outside that you are religious in some capacity and that you are doing things that God wants you to do, when on the inside, that's not really the picture of what's going on in your heart. You're serving one master on the outside and another master on the inside. Religious people give the impression that God is their ultimate affection and authority, when on the inside, something else is. And Jesus says, you cannot set God and something else as ultimate. Something will break, and something's got to give. And right here, Jesus tells us specifically that we cannot set God and wealth as our ultimate masters. We can't do it. Now, the word for wealth that's used here is a word in Middle Eastern language that meant mammon or mammon is how we kind of say it as we Americanize it. Mammon, right? Jesus is saying you can't serve God in mammon. And mammon at that time period was deified as a god. You could worship mammon, literally. But Jesus says you can only see and serve one God. Your heart cannot hold both. So will you love God or will you love mammon? Now we've got to ask the question, why would someone set and love wealth above all things? We can't be too hasty to point our fingers at people because we struggle with this ourselves. Why do people set wealth as ultimate? Because it creates a mirage. It creates a mirage that you are safe. Wealth has got you. You check your bank account. You have enough zeros. You know that the floods may come and your house will not fall because of those digits in your savings account, right? We set wealth as ultimate because it doesn't make it just feel safe. It makes us feel secure. That no matter what may hit us, We have the capacity and the ability financially to survive it and to weather it. And it gives us the false mirage that life is good, that there's some direct correlation between our happiness and what is in our bank accounts. Religious hypocrites like the Pharisees give the impression they love God when really they love and serve wealth. And this is what Jesus is going to begin to narrow focus on as we get to application. But I want you to be reminded of what Jesus said two weeks ago in Luke 14, 33. Jesus said, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. The communists and the socialists say, yes and amen. But they cut through the knot and they don't untie what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying you cannot be a disciple, meaning you cannot be a Christian, if you love wealth more than you love Jesus. If you look to anything and everything for security and safety and a good life above Jesus, the reality is you are not a Christian. That's what Jesus is saying here. That thing you turn to for safety, security, and a good life is your functional God. And I pray you have the ears to accept that. Jesus' concern for you is to see and serve one master as your ultimate affection and authority. And like the rich young ruler, he will let you walk away and continue to serve wealth as your God. Or romance, or drugs and alcohol, whatever it may be. He will let you walk out and continue to see things wrong. As my mother-in-law says, I will let you be wrong, let you think that you're right. She says that to me a lot now. She'll let me be right. Jesus will let you think that you're right. And you'll waste your life, but one day the steward will be held accountable and stand before the master. And so will you. You'll squirm your way to it, but that's how all of life ends for every single human being. So, will it be wealth and the empty promise of safety, security, and a satisfying life? Or will it be the one who took on flesh and died to secure real safety, real security, and real satisfaction for you? So being a Christian means that you've acknowledged this and you have been broken by this reality that you've pursued your safety and your security and your satisfaction without Jesus. And you may ask, how can you tell? How do you figure out if you are the steward? Well, I would say this. Do you avoid accountability when God speaks? when your life has to be intersected with Scripture because you have to sit through this today, and so your life is being confronted with Scripture, how do you respond? That will let you know if you are the unfaithful steward or not. Do you reject the opportunity for that accountability to come, let it wash out, and then God can direct your life? So now we're going to move into application because you and I need this. Just because we say we're Christians doesn't mean we don't need this next step. We need it even more. So we got to shift the application right now so we can see how people responded to Jesus so that we can rightly respond to Jesus as he continues to speak and teach us through his church today. All right, that's application. Now let's get to it. We're going to see the call today for you to reject the temptation to excuse your life by ridiculing Jesus' teaching. I think that's the essence of what's going on in the aftermath of what Jesus just said. And it's still the attention of every church hearer around the world this morning on this Lord's Day. American culture has not taught you how to cope and how to respond when truth challenges the way you want to live. America's been terrible at it. We're more about self-esteem than teaching us how to truly cope when life doesn't go right, or when life is challenging the way that you want to live. So you're not alone in this. This is a human problem. It's not a cultural problem. It's not an ethnic problem. Today's hard saying had a specific audience and a listener who struggled with what Jesus just said about love for God and love for money. That audience were the elites of Jewish society. But it doesn't matter whether it was the religious in first century Israel or God-fearing Americans in the 21st century. When Jesus' teaching challenges the way that you want to live, you are going to be tempted to excuse yourself, to excuse your lifestyle and your lifestyle choices, and you'll do so by ridiculing, scoffing, and bringing down, watering down the teachings of Jesus. Why? Because Satan Successfully tempted Adam and Eve by saying, did God really say? He scoffed at the word of God. And we still do it today when we're challenged with the Bible. This temptation doesn't go away. Just because God's given you a new heart, just because God puts you in a different position and you see Jesus differently than you did before, so we got to see this in the Pharisees. So by God's spirit, you and I can see this in ourselves. See, if we are the hypocrites, and I pray that God will make us a people here at Heritage that rejects this temptation, and that we repent, that we make excuses, and we lower the word of Jesus and the standards of Jesus because his teaching holds us accountable for how our flesh wants to live. All right, let's keep going with Luke. Verse 14, Luke tells us that the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, they were listening to all these things. And look at their reaction. They were scoffing at him. You see that? The Pharisees heard the teaching of Jesus. He was teaching his disciples. They were eavesdropping. This means that Jesus taught his people in a public setting. And this must be a reminder which contrasts with the call of social media. This necessitates that Christianity has always been a private thing, but it's always been a public thing because people of opposing points of view heard what Jesus said, and they hated it. That necessitates that Jesus was publicly teaching, as all Christians should still do today. The Pharisees heard this, and they scoffed at Jesus. And you got to ask why. Why would the teachers and the religious leaders of a religion push back as to what Jesus is saying? He's simply calling for people to have a singular devotion in life. And he just believes that that singular devotion should be God himself. Would any religious person have any issue with this? We have to be reminded that every single religious person, yourself included, is still fallen. And you still don't have a desire for God to be your authority. You want to be your own authority in life. We're always going to buck against it. Now, these Pharisees presented themselves to be lovers of God, teachers of the law. But if this was true, they would have no problem with Jesus' teaching because it perfectly aligns with what Jews still today consider to be the most important scripture. You ask any true, devout Jew what the most important scriptures in the Old Testament, they will say it's the Shema. That's what they'll say, Shema. It's Shema. It's Deuteronomy, and we're going to go to it right now. This should be familiar to you because a lawyer comes up to Jesus in some of his final moments and asks him what's the greatest law. He just repeats the Shema. And they agreed with him, right? Any good Jew knows the number one priority of the Jewish life is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Where Moses writes, Hero Israel, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. The Pharisees knew God called his people to love him with all that they are, like we sang this morning, with all my mind, with all my heart, with all my strength, all my soul. That's setting God as ultimate affection and authority. Any good Jew knows this. This is exactly what Jesus is teaching. So why are they scoffing at Jesus? Why are they ridiculing Jesus? Because Jesus is teaching has always and will always call out when your lifestyle does not align with God. You may feel safer and more comfortable in different churches, but if you feel safe and comfortable spiritually, I think that you may be in the wrong place because Jesus' teaching will always address our hypocrisy, our inauthenticity, and our brokenness, always. And he won't just stop there by calling it out but offering the hope also as well. So why are they scoffing and ridiculing Jesus? Luke tells us in verse 14, and then Jesus tells us in verse 15. Here's a hypocrisy. They know Shema. They teach Shema to the Jewish people, but Shema was not their soul's objective. Shema was not their end. Luke tells us in verse 14 that it was money. They were lovers, not of God, but of money. Their objective was to love power that's brought by wealth. Verse 15, here's how Jesus says it to them. You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your heart. Now that's either a thrilling thing or huh, that's scary to death, right? For that which is highly esteemed among men is attestable in the sight of God. The Pharisees loved money and power because it made them look good. It made them look right in the eyes of society. So, do you think it's only 21st century social mediaites who struggle with image and identity and precisely posturing themselves in the best position for a picture so they look good? Do you think it's only Americans that struggle with this? No, no. This is a human problem. All people everywhere, all time, struggle with image and identity. This isn't the latest revolution in sexual identity. We've always struggled with these things. We have been trying to cover ourselves up since Adam and Eve. The Pharisees can make themselves look good and look righteous in the public eye, even though their priority is money and power. But Jesus says to the Pharisees and to you today, God knows your heart. Whether you're avoiding, whether you're squirming, God knows your heart. And Jesus teaches them that what we tend to value as human beings, as ultimate, is actually detestable. In the eyes of God, we see things upside down. Wealth and power, therefore, are not the ultimate ends of life. To be a Christian necessitates that you've experienced this, that your previous ultimate end of life would have left you in the lurch. Is that the saying? Is that getting to right? Okay. My wife has all of these, like, you know, southern sayings. Anything else will leave you in the lurch at some point. The Pharisees hated Jesus for this. And when Jesus challenges the way that you want to live, you are going to be tempted to hate Jesus too. To put on mute notifications on Jesus as if you can do that. Turn your off your ears and turn your eyes to something else. This is all very human. Like the Pharisees, you will be tempted to reject Jesus When his teaching challenges the way you want to live. And you will ridicule Jesus by ridiculing oftentimes the people who say it to you. Because this person is also human, meaning they're just as fallen as you are. I do not have to do what Jesus says and commands to do. But God knows your heart too. And God knows that you see things upside down too. Now, here's the hope. Despite knowing all of this about you, and despite knowing all of this about me, God still gave his son to take on our sins and to take on our sorrows, right? How many relationships have failed when they truly got to know the heart of you? It's a a stunning reminder that you set romance as the end, it'll break. And you set wealth as the end, and it will break as well. This is why Christianity alone resolves the tension in your heart between affection and authority. So we ask, how can you and I as Christians reject this natural human desire to push against Jesus and his teaching, to push it away, to put it away when he challenges the way that we want to live? How can we do this as Christians? Because we need this today, and we need this tomorrow morning, and we need this all the way until Saturday night, and then rinse and repeat. And this is where the hope comes in. This is where the Spirit of Jesus that this is one of the reasons why Jesus took on the cross and he left us. This is where the Spirit of Jesus given to us by faith comes alongside to help. Here's the thing. You cannot find a single Bible verse where you will find Jesus or the apostles elevate the charismatic gifts as the ultimate work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You will never find that. However, you will find Jesus speaking time and time again that, that the Holy Spirit's essential, most, most joyful ministry is to be alongside you for certain reasons that have nothing to do with the charismatic gifts and to help us right now to provide that hope so you can walk out today and not just excuse yourself by ridiculing Christianity. We need to be reminded of the Spirit of Jesus in our lives. The greatest ministry of the Holy Spirit is to come alongside us to indwell us as our comforter, our helper, our teacher, and I know this isn't a word, but convictor. Right? Now let's be reminded. John 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus says, I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of charismatic gifts, of tongues and healings and prophecy. No, of truth the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and then will be pre-Pentecost in you. The Christian has an eternal safeguard against the natural human temptation to excuse ourselves by finding something in Jesus' teaching to reject. That safeguard is the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives his spirit to indwell us permanently forever. The Holy Spirit helps us here by telling us the truth. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit tells us the truth about yourself, about your relationships, about this world, about this culture, right? About life and about the next, and especially about Jesus. Now, verse 26 in John 14, Jesus says, The Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The Holy Spirit helps us by teaching us and making us remember all that Jesus taught. But you and I have a human, natural tendency to reject those who want to speak into our lives. You and I have a natural desire to reject authority. So... The Holy Spirit has one more ministry in your life, and it is essential to mark you out as a Christian. This is John 16, verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth. It's to your advantage, your benefit, that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And he, when he comes, he will convict do you see that? The Holy Spirit helps us by convicting us when our lifestyle doesn't match who God created us to be in Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's job, not to fill you with all these wonderful gifts. The Holy Spirit's simple job is just to convict you when your life is out of alignment with the life of Jesus, whom if you are a Christian, you are in Christ Christ. Christians don't reject Jesus and his teaching when it challenges how we live. Christians experience conviction and we repent when Jesus and his teaching challenges how we're living. So, my exhortation to you today is to let the Holy Spirit be your helper. That means, as Christians, we will, big word, big verb today, we will affirm The helping, indwelling, truth-telling, teaching, convicting work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As Christians at Heritage, we must learn to incorporate conviction into our lives and to incorporate repentance into our lives. Heritage, it is okay for you to acknowledge that you dropped the ball with Jesus. That's why he took the cross. We did this a couple weeks ago together, but how many conversations have you and I had personally where we talked about how you dropped the ball in some personal area of life and it's been okay between us, right? Right? It's because it's okay between you and Jesus because that's the exact reason why he took the cross. We must learn how to embrace repentance and conviction into our church life and not excuse our lives by rejecting and pushing away the Bible and pushing away God's people. That's the way you want to go. And I'm begging you to not do this today. When we gather to hear preaching and teaching, this means we have to ask every moment. We're about to transition and go into kindred, and you should be praying, God, as I engage with your people and your word, if you need to encourage me, encourage me. And if you need to exhort me, exhort me. That's how we should pray when we enter into these gatherings with each other. Have you done that before? And if not, will you do it now before we transition? Right? When we gather to hear preaching and teaching, we must ask the Holy Spirit, comfort us today if it's your will, and convict us today if it's your will. And I believe that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, will respond to a prayer like this. The Holy Spirit will be our advocate in the fight to set Jesus as our ultimate And when conviction and repentance is our priority, you will finally feel that you are safe no matter how many zeros are in the bank account, that you are secure no matter how much wealth you have or do not have. And you do live an extremely satisfying life no matter what's in that bank account, right? Our old desire, therefore, to set ourselves or romance or money as ultimate, will diminish.